This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself of Mini Reverse Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Ron Clark, author of A Bardon Companion, a practical companion for the student of Franz Bardon's system of hermetic initiation. The Franz Bardon series of books on magical arts, Initiation into Hermetics, The Practice of Magical Evocation, and The Key to the True Kabbalah are considered by many as the most lucid and actionable written material on hermetic practice. Initiation into Hermetics consists of a short introduction on theory and ten detailed lessons on practice covering the work on the mental, astral, and physical bodies. These lessons progress from very basic mental concentration and thought control practices through to advanced exploration of elemental and planetary realms and the merging with unity. In A Bardon Companion, Ron Clark combines two versions of his commentaries for each of the ten steps in Initiation into Hermetics, additional commentaries on practice of magical evocation and key to the true Kabbalah, as well as years of correspondence with students of the Bardon system. It is an essential guide for anyone interested in exploring the Bardon system of hermetics. Ron Clark is a writer and video producer who dedicates his work to magical practice in general and providing support material for practitioners of the Bardon system. He began pursuing Bardon's system of hermetic initiation in the early 1980s at the age of 25. Years later, he became involved in online blogging and discussion groups surrounding the Bardon work. He has emerged as one of the leading mentors for this system. His writings are clear, practical, and leavened with a gentle touch and humor. His work dispels many of the misconceptions associated with esoteric practice and makes the Bardon system available to anyone willing to put in the necessary consistent effort. Ron Clark, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are glad to have you, and uh, I will begin with uh, the question we have uh, uh, we, we eventually came to ask every every first time guest okay. in their on their first uh, um, encounter with the mystical positivist, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth, and ask you. Uh, in that uh, contemplation, if there were any moments during that early period of your life that, in retrospect, you would say prefigured what was to come with regard to the work that you've done in your Bardon Companion book and and related classes, materials, etc. Oh, um, huh. Gosh, uh, what comes to mind is a memory. I don't know if this actually happened or not, um, but it is a memory um, of being in the woods. This is in Weaverville, California. Hmm. The woods to me was our backyard, which had some trees and, you know, mm-hmm. on the edge of things. Um, but it was the woods. And being in the woods with my imaginary friend Mm -hmm. um, and 
just having a wonderful time being in the woods, you know, playing in the dirt with the, the grasses and the trees and yeah, just being part of the woods, I suppose. And that's so, got to be like the age of three or four or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started young. So, so uh, uh, a sense of connection, it sounds yeah. like you're saying. Yes, very definitely. That, that stands out. Yes. Hmm. Thank you. Any any other uh, memories or impressions? Um, another memory would be, oh, God, I must have been eight, maybe seven or eight, and doing like a Ouija board sort of set up with my mother. Mm-hmm. Used to periodically do, um, we would communicate, but instead of a Ouija board, we at first used a little shot glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, for mica table that we had, it was great. Uh, then we later, later used uh, an old Chinese basket that I had fallen in love with in an antique shop and demanded mm-hmm. that I that it be bought. And I had that for years and years. So, so yeah, you know, my life has just been full of those sorts of experiences. Got it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, so how did those that sensitivity or that uh, I guess what I'm hearing is like a just a kind of a a natural relationship to a quote unquote other side huh. uh, ultimately kind of weave its way into you you making a commitment to actually be a lot more focused and organized in uh, your wow. uh, what became your magical practice. Yeah. Uh, life, <laughs> you know, just the experiences of life, meeting really groovy, cool people, uh, you know, throughout my life. So I've always, oh, just always been open, I guess. Um, but the real commitment, uh, it was in 1986. I just tested positive for HIV. You know, which at the time brought up all these mortality issues, you know, like, oh, my God, I might have, you know, a couple of months left to live. And um, so it really made me look at my life and what I had been doing with my life and where it was taking me, where it was getting me. And I started thinking, you know, if I live five more years, 10 more years, what do I want my life to look like at that point? Do I want to have accomplished something or just carried on, you know, day to day, you know, the pleasurable experiences? Um, And at that point, I just decided to, well, put my nose to the grindstone and start doing some shit. So did that open it up? I'm just uh, wondering if if that nose to the grindstone impulse uh, had already had the form of the Bardon work. No, it didn't. It didn't. Um, I started reading everything um, sort of occult that I could get my hands on. So Mm -hmm. I got all the, you know, Golden Dawn stuff and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was after a while of that that I happened upon initiation into hermetics 
And from that moment, uh, you know, opening the book, very first time I was hooked. And uh, from that moment, you know, I've been doing, working with initiation aromatics with Barden's work. So that was a little bit later than 86 at any rate. Okay. Maybe just for our listeners, you might just briefly summarize who he was and, and, uh, okay. and what uh, his work. He was a Czech hermeticist, uh, early part, early half of the century, basically. He died in 1958, June of 58. Um, he, uh, in his earlier years, he was famous as a traveling magician, you know, with a stage show, et cetera. It was known as Furbato. Um, but in his more adult life, uh, he became a teacher, a hermetic teacher. Uh, he was uh, an alchemist of sorts, did a lot of healing work in a little town of Opava, Czechoslovakia. Uh, well, it was then part of russia but uh yeah he's just a a cool guy from the 50s uh fairly famous in certain circles and uh, and i i'm i was intrigued to read about his having been imprisoned yeah. by the nazis and then late and then later well, by the communist regime in czechoslovakia he I guess. was only imprisoned by the communists later in the 50s you know in 58 okay um, he was not imprisoned by the, the Nazis, but, oh. you know, he lived through that whole time. And mm. OK. So it's a, obviously a difficult I mean, circumstances presumably were difficult in his life in, in one sense, at least. In, in one sense, yes. But, you know, uh, to see pictures of him, he didn't look bothered. He didn't okay. look bothered. He looked like a very pleasant, um, jovial sort of person. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so the, I think the remarkable thing about uh, his series of books, in particular his first book, Initiation into Hermetics, is it's is very specific and practical okay. guide for uh, magical development, which. Uh, although I think subsequently there may be some, uh, you know, similar models. Uh, I don't, my recollection is that a lot of the material, like things from the golden dawn or any sort of, you know, would jump people right into ritual work, but without really any sort of context about developing sort of foundational skills of attention to do that. And I think there was always yeah. an, there was kind of an assumption, it seems, that uh, in the magical world, that if you were interested in this stuff, you already you know had some sort of uh, uh, you know oh. capabilities or skills or something like that. It was just ignored. No. no, I don't think so at all. I think you know the people I've seen getting involved with Golden Dawn right off the bat, you know, have no magical training at all. And by the time they've gone through the Golden Dawn curriculum, they still have no true magical training. You know, they have training in basically theatrical ritual. Um, but there's no magic in that, really, you know. Um, Barden's is the only writing that gives a clear curriculum, you know. There is no ritual in initiation in aromatics. 
right. I, I, part of training. I think, and I guess it'd be fair to say that what might look like ritual that you would see in Golden Dawn might show up in his second book, The Practice of Magical oh. Evocation. But no. but even that, really? No, that still doesn't. In, in Magical Evocation, there isn't, uh, you know, the traditional evocation rituals where you recite psalms and you, you know, say descriptive things. Oh, okay, right. His approach to evocation is although it uses a lot of the same techniques, a lot of the same tools, he has a very different approach to it. In evocation, for him, the first step in evocation is to mental wander to that realm of the the entity that you are going to be evoking and converse with them at at the mental level. So ultimately, evocation is not even necessary uh, because uh, why do you need to go through the whole process of evoking a being into the physical or astral density when you already have access to that being at the mental level, which is the level you're going to use to converse, etc. So, got it. So, his, his evocation process does not involve the recitation of psalms and, you know, specific words and all that. So how do you, I'm just interested in how you locate that, um, uh, like, Golden Dawn material. Like, is that, is it, as you said, theatrics? Is it um, a kind of entertainment or is it a quasi-magical practice? Psychology is really what it is. It's therapy, you know, and uh, that's what, the majority of evocation is, for example, dealing with all these spirits and stuff. It's really a form of psychotherapy, dealing with the contents of one's own psyche, you know, um, which are often frightening and, you know, horrific, etc. So, So in the Bardon system, there's a very clear breakdown of the work that one does and whatever of the 10 lessons that are provided uh, uh, manifest and that's into the uh, mental the astral and the physical can you talk can you talk a little bit about uh, in that system what those what those represent and okay. and why why that why there's a separate a sort of a, a thread of training for each and and why that training happens at the same time okay the the basis is a balanced training, a balanced med- magical training um, that has to, therefore, encompass your physical, your astral, which is to say your emotional body, your personality, your character, etc., and your mental body, which is your awareness. That's basically what that means. So... The exercises of each step, and the steps are sequential, um, are presented in three sections, mental, astral, and physical. And there's exercises, each of these sections, that are to be done simultaneously. Like you start with the first mental exercise, the first astral exercise, and the first physical exercise. You start there, and with regular practice, and you add the other exercises within that step. 
Um, so a physical is, well, the best way to explain what the three bodies are is to talk about the elemental body, the mental body, the awareness. It's everything is awareness, basically. So we have these bodies that are composed of awareness. There is an eternal mental body, our connection with the one, the I, the one self, the unity. Um, then there is the temporal mental body. This is the body that incarnates over and over within the temporal realm. It's an extension of the eternal mental body, but it exists in the temporal realm. So this is our commonly called our mental body, and it has four elemental regions. There's the fire region, which is that part of our awareness that that merges with the eye that that rises up like a flame you know it's the most ephemeral part it's always rising up then there's the air region which is the awareness which is us you know that is what we identify as self the awareness then there's the water region of the temporal mental body which is the the um, astral body, the emotional body, it's the, it's the body that, it's where our senses are located. It's the body that processes sensory information that we receive through our five physical senses and gives us, you know, our perceptions, provides our perceptions. It translates these electrical impulses that we get through our senses into our perceptions. That's the astral body. It's the habitual body. Okay. Then there is the earth region of the mental, temporal mental body, which is the normal everyday awareness that we use in interaction with the world here in the physical realm. Okay. So those are the three basic bodies that we work with in hermetics, the mental, the astral, and the physical. And each of those is developed in the training, equally developed. Let me, let me ask you particularly about the astral body because okay. I'm, I'm you know, unfamiliar with, with okay. this, this um, arrangement that you're uh -huh. describing. And um, I think... Astral, I think you, in one point of the book, I see there's astral slash soul. And, right, right. and, and so that, that's, um, so that doesn't track into, uh, on other, into the use of that word astral in other systems. Okay. Yeah. With soul. Okay. The, the difference between spirit and soul is clearly defined in Barden's spirit would be the mental body, the awareness, this thing that, that incarnates uh, into a physical body. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the spirit. The soul is the astral body. The astral body exists 
only during incarnation. It okay. is what is necessary for awareness to integrate with physical matter yeah. and then function in the physical realm. I mean, really, this is a big leap between awareness and this physical body. You know, how does this fit? And everything has an astral body. Every physical thing has an astral body. When that physical thing dies, the physical body disintegrates and the astral body disintegrates. And the only thing left is the spirit, the mental body, the awareness. Okay. Okay. And then it goes again through that process of incarnation. Well, let me, let me, I mean, just to further drill down on that a little bit. Um, uh, so my ex- you know, other than growing up uh, an altar boy in Roman Catholicism, <laughs> my experience of, uh, uh, you know, systems that attempt to describe how cosmo- the cosmos works, the cosmos sees mm-hmm. within the cosmos works is the fourth comes out of the fourth way. And in the fourth way, there are, there's there are distinguished sort of uh, uh, everyday habitual emotional Mm-hmm. Um, responses to life, and then are described a higher emotional uh, manifestations. Is there any? Is there any? Is there any uh, uh, correspondence to to the okay. system that you're describing? Uh, the first thing that we do in Barden's work is we develop what we call the black mirror and the white mirror. And what this is, is a self-analysis. It's taking stock of all the character traits. Mm -hmm. The black mirror would be the negative character traits. The white mirror would be the positive character traits. They both exist within the astral character. They're both parts of the astral character. Mm -hmm. One is intentional and one is unintentional. And it's the dark mirror, the black mirror, that we then go through the process of making changes. The idea is that we positivize all those negative traits. We make them into conscious choices instead of the unconscious habits Mm -hmm. that they exist as, you know, when we enter into this process. So we see... All of that within the astral personality, the higher emotions, Mm -hmm. as well as because the astral body exists. Well, geez, I'm actually doing a video on this uh, sort of very subject right now. Hmm. Um, So my timing is good. Yeah, <laughs> but whether I can actually get the words out right okay. now is the question. Um, okay, because I have to backtrack a little. Bit. Okay, okay. So the raw mental body, the spirit, mm-hmm. has this natural urge because it is the urge of the I to self-realize itself, and in order to do that. 
it must come down to this fine point of the temporal present moment, that infinitely finite present mm -hmm. moment, okay? Mm -hmm. But in order for an individualized mental body to integrate into that infinitely finite present moment, it's got to go through these various phases. It has to accumulate things to its awareness. One of those is the astral body, okay? Mm -hmm. And that is, jeez, at the point of the I-self realizing, you know, it realizes that it is the temporal realm. The temporal realm, everything in the temporal realm is, in effect, its body. Okay, the the realm in which it is realizing itself mm -hmm. is it's all about the I self realizing. Okay, so as it enters this part of itself that is temporal, temporary, um, not eternal, there is the realist all of the parts of itself. In this realm, it, it break, breaks into an infinite number of parts okay. Okay? Um, that form the temporal realm. Every bit of the temporal realm is the eye, you know. It's, mm -hmm. So <clears throat> each of those individual parts, suddenly the experience is I and other, Okay. It's the first point at which there is I and other. You know, that other is still I, but, you know, the experience is I and other. So that's where the astral body comes in, because the astral body is the body that enables us to interact with other. Our emotions, okay. they're all about this interaction between self mm -hmm. and other. Mm -hmm. all, all of our existence is an interaction between self and other. You know, other being everything, you know. Right. Everything. Every material, every material manifestation. It's all alive. You know, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. The universe, everything in the universe is alive. Everything in the universe is the I. You know, everything is filled with the I. So... Here we are, little bits of the eye in this universe of I, interacting with, with the eye as self and other. Uh -huh. Got it. Okay. All right. So, the, you know, there's no conflicts between mm -hmm. these systems. There's just different shades of definitions, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, that, and I think that's that's what we find interesting in conversations like this is to both see the commonality and explore the mm -hmm. shades of difference. Mm -hmm. Right. One of, one of the, you know, on this uh, subject of the black and the white mirror, uh, I think there's a related, or the, the aim of that is this concept of astral equilibrium, which right. is, which is hol holding, holding the, um, this astral body in a kind of uh, uh, balance that no no 
Okay. See, that's a problem with the, that term, the astral equilibrium. People get into this, oh, well, I have to have this. If I have this many uh, negative character traits, then I have to have this many positive character traits. So, so if I have more positive character traits than I have negative traits, I've got to increase my negative traits until they achieve balance, you know, equilibrium. No, no, the, the, the process is the positivation, positivization of the negative traits. Mm-hmm. And we use the positive traits in that process. They're like our allies in that process. And in the end, we end up with a positivized personality, a fully conscious personality, because you know, we've taken the negative habitual traits and looked at the root of them and transformed them into their positive corollary that is then intentional. So, so in the, uh, the, in the language that you're using, the, the negative trait is an unconscious trait. Um, and it's not, it's, it's simply something that functions, functions mechanically and is triggered by some sort of external uh, well, yeah, that's how that's how all of our character traits develop. You know, they're all habitual, basically. Our good character traits are in general habitual too. But in this system, you know, we're making all of the character traits conscious things because you know we 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 have to determine who we are in the world. You know, that's part of being a magician. You know. <laughs> So, so would you say that? I mean, that's that's an interesting point because the a positive character trait um, could be unconscious as well. Oh yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Like, let's say I I habitually uh, uh, help people, and it's and it's it's unexamined. Like we we know people yeah, who do that. Uh, yeah. So so in in a in a magical creation of the black and white mirror, where where would my say, addiction to helping people um, figure? Would that be a... Oh, I mean, you're going through the construction of this mirror. Yeah. So you're you're bringing all these things up into your awareness and, you know, contemplating them consciously. Um, so it will clue you just that process alone, clues you in to, okay, this is a positive trait, but it's unconscious and I have... You know, no idea what the motivation is. So you figure that out. You know, it's just that. So, so it's almost it's almost as if the unconscious, apparently positive trait that you that you label positive actually has a a dark side to it. No, no, not necessarily. And and I'm, it's not unconscious. It's subconscious. Okay. Okay. Um, it's possible that your positive character trait, which everybody sees as this positive thing, mm-hmm. comes from something really fucked up in your childhood. Mm-hmm. That you know you have to take care of everybody, right? Or you know you've got to be the good little boy all the time, kind of thing. Right. Right. Uh, well, that's a negative character trait in that instance you know okay that you need to deal with okay so so what what 
through this self-examination process, that's how you would distinguish the negative aspect of what everyone else thinks is a positive uh, trait. Hopefully. Hopefully. Because everybody's different, you know, going into this process. Of course. Some people are just totally, have never experienced self-honesty, you know, and Mm -hmm. are horrified when they look inside. Um, Right. An interesting process. Everybody's different with it. I'm just, as a sort of an aside, um, in our own work, we work closely with a uh, teacher and so had a living mirror, if you will, uh, 24 by 7 for us mm-hmm. uh, as a uh, reflection of what the nature of the, yeah, or, or well, I'd say more of a, often is more a reflection of, uh, it was a mirror that was remarkably good at giving feedback on un- unconscious or unexamined wow. uh, uh, behavior. And, and so, um, I'm sim- I, I am sensitive to the degree of my own, uh, lying to myself, um, and how difficult that process to unpeel that even, even working with a teacher who mm. for, for a long time to, to really, uh, sensitize me to the scene of that. So, so that I, so I guess my, I'm interested in your experience because you've uh, worked with lots and lots of people over the years in terms of providing guidance, commentary, and feedback on their work with the Bardon system. How well does it work for people to do take responsibility for their own mirrors? I think it, it's the only way, in my opinion, because even with the mirror there, you still got to do the work yourself. You know? Yeah. Oh, oh to be sure. You. Yeah, to be sure. You're the one that makes the changes. And the whole whole of the Barden work is that way. You are the judge, you know. So you've got to learn discernment. (laughs) You know, you've got to learn self-honesty. And if you don't, you stop practicing. I mean, it's really that simple. The people that are incapable of that sort of self-examination simply stop after a short while because they can't get anywhere with the other exercises. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, there's the three exercises go together and they're all interdependent. If you don't master the step one mental exercises, you can't do the step two exercises. You can't accomplish them. Because they're dependent on what you did in step one. Likewise, step three is dependent on what you did in step two and step one, so on. Yeah, and just, and just as a uh, an example for listeners, just to give a little more context, an example of a step one concentration exercise is the ability to hold a single thought for 10 minutes without distraction, or the ability to... Ha- not hold a thought, have a vacant mind for 10 minutes. Uh uh And first is the ability to just observe the mind without involvement. Mm -hmm. And that's often the biggest hurdle for people. But that, you know, the later mental exercises are made possible by that very first exercise, the detached observation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Is, which is uh, extraordinarily familiar to us because that's that's the start of the fourth way. Yeah, right. System. I mean, the Gurdjieff the uh-huh. Gurdjieff work is uh, it, it's not it's typically not uh, expressed as a magical teaching. So, uh-huh. but that but that self observation is like foundational and uh-huh. um, and. And to some extent, so is character development, but right. it, it well, comes up in a slightly different way. In hermetics, you know, there's a great axiom, know thyself, which that's, you know, number one. But it continues, change thyself. And that is just as important as know thyself, in my opinion. Because just knowing yourself, well, whoop de doo <laughs> you know, if that doesn't lead to self change, then it's unimpressive. Really. So, uh, a moment ago, we were talking about astral equilibrium, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I was thinking of something slightly different in that in in the the black and white mirror exercises uh, because there's a point in which you divide things up into their roughly their elemental composition. And I guess I, I've understood astral equilibrium as trying to balance the manifestation of these elements uh, yeah, within one's uh, uh, psyche or astral body. Is that, is that a, is that correct? Or is that a, would you that put it? That is part of it. Yeah. Um, because you want to, as you build, you know, <clears throat> your personality, as you, self-craft you want it to be well-rounded um that really comes into more importance later on when it comes to the mental equilibrium of the elements and that's really where those aspects of the deeper character um you know emerge um (sighs) yeah well well, I, I guess maybe just, just to, to frame this, when you when you use the term like uh, aspect of the deeper character, what what's an example uh, of a, a deeper character aspect that curiosity, for example, inquisitiveness, um, courage, daring, sincerity. You know, yeah. Well, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking in the uh, uh, Gurdjieff work, there's a, a term that's used, being impulse. And it had... Impulse? Yeah, being impulse. And it's, a, it, it's, it's, at least I understand that term to be a more pure, like from our essential self, uh, there are impul- impulses that are arising that are natural, natural about who we are in, right. in, yeah, in this right. form. I, which, okay. which is you know, which is distinct from the, these kind of psychological mechanisms and things like that. So right. I get I, right. so, the essence versus the manifestation, the temporal manifestation, right? Um, for me, um, I'd find those urges to being um, as essential meaning. Um, As the I self realizes, it realizes it means something, that it exists. It means something. <laughs> and this is essential meaning. 
It's eternal. It, it applies to everything in the cosmos. Um, and everything in the cosmos is made up of essential meaning. As essential meaning passes through that, not barrier, but that, that phase between the eternal and the temporal, that shift between eternal and temporal, the essential meanings become an infinite number of essential meanings. And everything, every individualized awareness expresses a certain number, a certain combination of essential meanings in a certain ratio. And each of us is utterly unique. Everything is utterly unique in that way, hmm. in what it expresses, you know, hmm. like you, you express a certain set of essential meanings, you express a certain set of essential meanings, I express a certain sense, this is what makes us different. And there are the, those, that internal urge, you know, to be in a specific way. And that's part of the mystery of this interaction between self and other. Because that interaction, we we have to open up. We have to open up the barriers of self. You know, the definition of self, those rigid little boundaries, in order to interact with other. But at the same time, we have to maintain those boundaries to a certain degree in order to still be ourselves. So it's always this give and take, this opening and closing, and opening and closing. That's yeah, that's a I that's an interesting way that you put that. Um the other thing I'm hearing from this, which I <clears throat> appreciate, um I've appreciated this in your writings in general, is that um this idea of this this meaningness, this meaningfulness mm. is is uh, uh, you might say it's a feature of the temporal realm and not a bug, as they say in software, because they because so many mystical systems often sort of uh, down downplay the importance of that being embodied and the meaningfulness of uh, the uniqueness, uh, and, yeah. and, and they and they use that then they use that opposition to motivate trying to as it were get off get off this planet right it's all about control basically um yeah uh for me there is no you know material reality is evil sinful you know dark and oh heavenly is pure and you know perfect it's all one thing it's all part of the one thing no more important no less important and what happens right here in the physical world in the present moment is the most important thing for us right now you know as otherwise we wouldn't be here you know we're here for a reason to experience what's happening right now in our lives each from our own little perspective, you know? <clears throat> so, yeah, I don't do that. Yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> we use this orientation of up and down a lot. 
you know, we rise to the one self, we descend into our physical bodies, right? But the thing is, awareness is not hierarchical. It's just not. It's a lateral thing. You know, to get to the eye, I don't go up. I just go laterally. You know, to get to these other parts of myself, it's all, you know, just a lateral movement. There is no valuation of up and down to the universe. You know, the universe isn't composed of human emotions, you know, human biases. So in a sense, it's a, um, it's a particular state of like a, a non-dual state, a, a unity state is going to be uh, a great place to, as it were, visit, but not, but it's not any more or less uh, distinguished or privileged than a state of embodied immersion into the here, here and now in a physical form. See, I think one of the real crimes of religion is that it taught us that we are separate from the one self, the I, the the God, okay? God is separate, superior. There is no chance in hell that we are ever going to have an experience of God because we're not good enough, right? That's the basic fundament of pretty much all religions um, that we have to strive to reach the divine. But at the same time, the definition of the divine is always, it's everywhere. It's in everything. Infinite. God is infinite. The deity is infinite. So what that really means, if you use your rational logic, is that it's everywhere. It's the most common thing in the universe. The I, the one self. It's everywhere. It's in everything. And it's easy. It's just so simple to connect with. I mean, to really connect with. Not just in fantasy, but to connect your awareness with the one awareness. Because you're a part of it. Everything is part of it. It's always there. And the way to touch upon that is go into the I, the sense of I-ness that everything possesses. That I. That's our connection with the divine. And it's with us all the time, everywhere, every moment, waking or sleeping, we are that connection. So, so um, the that doorway to connection is often, it seems to me, occluded by the tendency to hierarchicalize, which is a word I'm imposing on what you just said, and basic, basically, uh-huh. as embodied in. Words like the supreme or the the Lord that that's the one that really gets me because yeah. it's an imposition of 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 dysfunctional human hierarchies yeah. onto well, that relationship. 
all a human construct that we're talking about here. Of course. You know, we're dealing in human constructs. So, uh, mm-hmm. And we tend to use this directional, uh, which is good for learning. <laughs> it's good. You know, it's handy mm-hmm. for learning, but not for being. Okay. It's the two processes, the, the, the learning and the practice, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I guess in a, in a sense, um, uh, I, I, I play a Japanese bamboo flute and, and I've worked with a, a teacher for many years. And in order to play, you have to have a full range. So I have to play high notes. I have to play low notes. But that's not the same as when you play a piece of music, uh, whether it's a high note or a low note there is a, an expression and an artistry that comes through that note. And, and so to use an artistic example, then we, we, tr- we may train and a system of training may set up a hierarchy of states or realms or qualities of consciousness, but it's not the same as saying one is better than the other. It's just simply saying this is a note on a scale. Right. Right. And that, that's same with the initiation in hermetics, you know, what's laid down in the book is the training, not the practice. And, uh, you know, the practice may look very different than the training. Well, and that's an interesting question as well uh, uh, to me, because um, there's, when I have seen your work, you know, I I have the, I have the feel of an artist uh, uh, I, I get the impression that that's maybe part of your background was a uh, more art- artistically oriented. Uh, these days there's more, uh, manifestations online of Bardon systems or trainings and things like that. And, and I, and I get different flavors. Like some people feel a little more like they're uh, martial artists and, uh, yeah. with this sort of thing. And, and so it does, it is an interesting question. So yeah, when you, when you, complete this corpus of training um, is the doing of what you do with it really more just a reflection of your uh, one's personal uh, essence and artistry? Of course. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of it is to be yourself, you know, and to truly be yourself and to truly be a human being. Uh, See, that's the thing. People approach initiation to hermetic magic as this special thing. These wild, unnatural abilities that defy the laws of nature. But it's not. This This is like kindergarten, really, in how to be a human being. These are faculties that human beings all have but we have been trained <laughs> out of them you know we've been convinced brainwashed that we don't have these abilities like the subtle senses we all use them they are a natural part of our perceptions i mean we all use them constantly but we don't recognize that we're using them. We don't 
see their influence in our perceptions because we don't really look at the mechanism of perception to begin with. But all of these abilities and initiation into hermetics are human abilities, abilities that the human being is designed for. You know, manipulating the elements. I mean, it's natural for human beings to do that. Well, uh, let me let me ask you to get specific about that about okay. that phrase, manipulating the elements, because I I'm not sure what that means, okay. and I and I and I and I want to know. Oh boy, <laughs> I need to get more coffee. Just a second, okay? Sure. <laughs> All right, right back. <laughs> okay. Okay, so that that's really one of those big questions that nobody really likes to answer. Um, but okay, so there's several different systems of elements, as you know. You know, there's like mm-hmm. Oriental elements are very different than the, the Hermetic elements. So <clears throat> we look at the universe and we see that there are certain categories uh, of things, of characteristics, of actions that we break down into four categories. Mm-hmm. Okay, so fire, air, water, and earth. Um, fire is that expansive, outward, you know, uh, explosive. Water, its opposite, is that magnetic, you know, taking in, coming into form, etc. Air is sort of the medium between the two, where they sort of balance each other out so it's not an active state it's more of a passive state okay earth element is the action of fire water and air all together all at once Hmm. it's when it's combined it's always representation so the only two real elements are fire and water the expansive and the contracted okay so In Hermetics, and probably in the Eastern systems, too, um, and they're working with the elements, what we are doing is we are looking at the universe, seeing the presence of, let's say, the fire element in all things around us, and then shifting our perception to where we are looking at only the fire element in the universe. Mm. So we are therefore completely surrounded by the fire element. Okay. Okay. Now what that does is that connects us. This is at the level of awareness, the mental realm on the mental plane, like attracts like. And the mental plane, you put a thought out there, you know, the universe sort of responds and other similar thoughts all come to towards it, right? That's the, the basis of manifestation. Um, <clears throat> so when we're doing that on the mental plane, we are making contact with that aspect of the universe on the mental plane. So we are making contact mm-hmm. with the factual fire element 
as opposed to the imaginary or just the philosophical fire element. Okay, so the philosoph, what we're doing is we're changing a philosophical thing into a physical thing with our consciousness. This is something human beings can do. You know, um, we can convert philosophical things into physical things that we can manipulate and treat as if they are something physical. So when we make contact with that factual fire element on this mental level, we can then bring it down into the physical universe and manipulate it. We can fill something with that fire element, heat it up. Okay? It's It's that conversion process from a philosophical idea of fire element, you know, we recognize these characteristics to into something that we can physically manipulate or astrally manipulate or mentally manipulate. So let me ask a, a question since you alluded to different systems. Um, it's not when you work with uh, the four elements in the hermetic system, this process you're describing is really reifying the element into something. So in principle, if I used a different elemental system with the same intensity of practice, I could do the same with that. It'd be analogy to use the musical analogy of earlier, a different scale, uh-huh. but it yeah. would be, but it would still effectively be the, you know, but the, the key the key is not the idea as much as making the idea real through the application of consciousness and the way you're describing. Right. And that what the result is, when I manipulate the fire, when I fill something with the fire, it does get hot. When I fill myself with the fire, I can generate a temperature. Likewise, when I fill something with the water element, it does literally get cold. But more so, it takes on the philosophical characteristics of the element. Hmm. Okay. So what we are manipulating is basically the meaning of the element. The meaning of fire gets transferred into something when we transfer the element into it. Does that make sense to you? Well, uh, according to what you just described, yes. And you've you've described uh, in your commentary on the elements that um, when one starts to practice, you know, and and the practices may involve imagining coming into contact with the element, imagining bringing the element into oneself, and imagining heat, if we're talking about the fire element, and that, that there comes a point in that practice where it goes from I'm imagining this to I'm actually contacting something a factual thing and and yeah. that okay. I, I, yeah go ahead sorry <laughs> one thing very important in hermetic practice and in hermetics is the magical imagination the creative imagination and how powerful that is um because of that mental level that at the level of awareness like attracts like. 
whatever you put out there, you know, is going to bring it to you. Right. So we use that in initiation into hermetics training by starting with the imagination and you imagine it. And eventually at the mental level, you're making that connection with the factual fire element. And then you can start to manipulate the actual factual fire element. That, this is interesting to me because, you know, when I started my training in uh, uh, our version of the fourth way, um, a lot of a lot of fourth way practitioners, to my way of looking at it now, misunderstand the um, the uh, thing that Gurdjieff is reputed to have said about visualization, which is that. Uh, he was talking about a particular kind of sort of, of unfocused um, daydreaming, daydreaming essentially. But um, but uh, Stuart put me put I mean brought both of us into contact with a, a guy named R.J. Stewart, and it was through working with him that I came to realize that visualization is this incredibly powerful tool. Oh yeah, that is um, that is very helpful in. Shifting awareness for sure, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and I and I think you're saying that that I mean you use slightly different language, but I'm but I'm hearing a very similar kind of uh, um, direction. Visualization is an essential tool for the magician mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. everything, all energy is manipulated with the mind, you know, mm-hmm. through visualization. Yeah, and and. And that means that um, that realm of creative visualization is uh, is indispensable, yeah. really, for for making the kind of changes that I think you're talking the, 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 that you were referring to earlier in this conversation. Okay. Is that is that right? Kind of changes. Which changes? Well, you said that um, you know you're doing self observation, and oh. then and then later there are transformations, right. transformational uh, in changes that, in that process. Visualization doesn't really play a role, okay? Because that's more an internal mental thing than it is a visual thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't visualize a, a change of activity you know it's more uh change well in the character transformation it's all about habit substituting one old habit for a new chosen you know consciously chosen habit Uh that keeps the same need that the old negative habit met but now meets it in an adult you know conscious intentional positive way See, that's most all negative traits stem from childhood um, sure. and are, you know, just really innocent solutions to life circumstances, you know, and traumas, especially. Um, and they become habitual because, hey, it worked. You know, when I was four years old, it worked just fine. So I'm just going to keep on doing it. And when you're an adult, it's by then a pretty you know, negative, putrid kind of rotted thing. Got it. But no, there is no actual visualization used in that. 
but but in the process to getting to this transformation, um, it seems to me that the visualization, creative visualization, can be useful in in creating the the tools with which that transformation is created. Is that is that an accurate mm-hmm. understanding? Not creative visualization. You know, it's it's creative thinking. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'm not talking about a simplistic view of visualization. Okay. okay. But um, I mean, that's how I'm translating what, okay, uh, part of what part of what you're saying. Okay. Fine. Cool. But but I, I think in the sense that you're talking about visualization, it, it's uh, in the, the step two of initiation into hermetics, there are sensory right. uh, uh, practices for okay. h- holding an image in one's mind or, or hearing something, a, a sonic yeah. object in one's mind or smelling something in one's uh-huh. mind for an extended period of time. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what one uh, practices with. Yeah. So, you know, one, one question that's come up for me in looking at that material is, um, as one works through those steps, how much, what's the right balance between being a perfectionist and doing well enough to then continue? Because I think that question must come up a lot. Well, it seems to me, you know, it, you, comes you, up for everybody. You, yeah. it seems to me you address it in the book and the parts I read anyway. Usually I say, well, it's up to you. <laughs> you know, you are the judge. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that's part of the training. You know, the self-sufficiency, this radical self-honesty to judge whether you really have accomplished what needed to be accomplished, you know. And that's mm-hmm. totally a self-valuation. And that works, you know. So, so in that in that kind of understanding of how things of how things work um if you find your if after a while you find yourself stuck that's an indication that you're that you you were not honest with yourself about whatever the character is or you just didn't see you know mm-hmm. it might not have anything to do with honesty self-honesty um or that you thought wrong you know, but yeah, it, right, it right, right. have to go back at that point and right, right, okay. What needs to be developed further? Yeah. Okay, that yeah, makes sense. that's a certain thing. You know, you might decide within a week that you you've already finished up through step five, and then you start in step six, and you just don't get anywhere. I see. You know, unless you do the work, it's just so dependent on achieving you know what he's directing you to achieve got it so um so that leads me to the question of um in the book you you in your book uh about on companion you uh you write that um it doesn't really matter where it came from this whole methodology Mm. but um but it is also an incredibly effective uh, methodology you assert and um compared with the other ones as we were talking about earlier with golden dawn for as an example Mm -hmm. 
but um uh so um could you imagine a more a, a, a modified methodology that would be that could conceivably be effective for fo- for folks i'm i'm wondering you know I, I, there are several other meta- methodologies that would be effective for me yes that's all we can say that's you true know, whether yeah. it's effective for me or not yeah. right right we're all different you know i've known several gold donors who really took it all the way and you know really got there you know okay okay um so just because that's my opinion of the golden dawn uh doesn't make it you know absolute uh same with initiation hermetics i've told several people well you know this probably just isn't for you you know you do something else you know (laughs) you're wasting your time Um, that that makes complete sense to me i mean the more uh, the more the more i'm hopefully i'm maturing as i grow older the more, the more, the more that uh, I see that there's no single methodology, oh. and it and it is all about the individual, and what and yeah. what and what is effective, or will prove effective for them. Ultimately, there are as many different ways to thread the needle as there are people to do the threading, because mm-hmm. we're all unique. You know, we all have just this internal universe that is separate, you know, mm-hmm. from everybody else's and it, we process things our own way. Mm-hmm. Well, one, one thing I wanted to uh, cover in, in, in terms of the initiation into hermetic system that, you know, besides the um, comp- a Bardon companion in which you basically give commentary on the exercises and also, uh, think decades of correspondence with people. So it's a really, it's just a great way of being in conversation about the system. Mm-hmm. You, you're more recently have been doing um, uh, a video series and uh, have put, put elements of that video series into a book companions along the way. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it'd be interesting just, you know, we've been talking about this. We've been talking about this 10 step process. Um, What's the level of commitment that uh, you recommend someone make? uh, And how does one structure one's practice around uh, this to reasonably make progress, uh, you know, obviously at one's own rate, but Mm -hmm. to, 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 you know, do enough that something happens. And and, uh, so how how do you? Um, I recommend as the the top line effort here is twice a day, it, once in the morning and once in the evening, you have a regimen. Um, there are uh, certain physical things that Barden instructs to be done, you know, uh, b- a cold shower or b- bathing in some way, brushing the skin, you know, all these things. So a little bit of physical exercise, then sitting down to the Barden exercises doing the mental exercise, then the astral exercise, and then the physical exercise. And do that in the morning. And then in the evening, again, do your Barden exercises before going to bed. Okay? So twice a day, 
every day, twice a day, is that is what Barden recommended. And it really is the quickest way. Yeah. Uh, a minimum would be once a day. And you've got to do that every day is a thing. And for the uh, time that, uh, what, what How is... How much time? Yeah. That's a good question, you know. It, it will vary as you progress. In the beginning, it might be pretty brief, you know, maybe an hour to take care of the exercises. But it mostly has to do with how much time do you have? <laughs> how much time can you fit in? Because everybody's life is, you know, busy um, with other things. So, you know, and as you progress in the uh, exercises, you know, a session of work can, you know, be hours. And you and you write in the Barter and Companion that um, while at the beginning it might feel onerous, I guess, uh-huh. um, uh, that eventually it becomes um, nourishing. And that's not oh, your yeah. word. That's yeah. not your word, yeah. but yeah. But that's what I read. Yeah, there's at first a resistance, you know, again, changing habits. You know, so much of it is about establishing the habit, you know, of its mm-hmm. regular work. And then mm-hmm. eventually that fits into your life and starts to nourish life as well. Yeah. And, you know, the, the initiation of hermetics is not just something you sit down and do twice a day. You know, it is a a full life uh, engagement. The very second exercise in the mental uh, section of step one is one of continuous self-awareness. You know, being aware of what you're doing while you're doing it instead of, you know, being out in la-la land while you're doing something else, kind of distracted, being on your phone while you're driving kind of thing, you know. Well, you, I think you use a comparison to a Buddhist mindfulness training right. on, that, on that point. Uh-huh. uh-huh. It is very similar to mindfulness. Yeah. Okay. Be here now, you know. Is... <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a highly common uh, characteristic of most um, uh, self-examination practices, I uh-huh. think. And, and, and something that uh, we're constantly being invited not to do with all the technology oh, yeah. that we surround ourselves with. I do not own a cell phone. Well, actually I do, but it sits unplugged and has for years. So. <clears throat> oh, that's impressive. That's impressive. I, I, uh, I, 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 I take a, uh, uh, a weekend rest from screens oh. <laughs> is how I, is how I, you know, and then, and then my wire. And then, and and then on Monday morning, I have to wade through a million, a million emails. But but it is it is an interesting thing, you know, when we talk about these practice regimens. That if you really look, as you said, you did in your life uh, at how we spend our time. There's a lot of time that is uh, oh, yeah. could, could easily be uh, shift, shifted into something else. I mean, it's 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 it just uh, it's. 
I think, it, I guess it really boils down to how strong the need is that you feel to actually make that change or make that commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Just how strong the commitment is. Yeah. Well, also, um, if, if I understand the time frame. You start. You would have started this Vardon material in the late '80s, mm-hmm. well before the ubiquity of screens that we experience oh, today. There was no internet. Well, nothing that anybody right. had any access to. Right. Oh. Yeah. And 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 um, not even. I mean, even before the internet, there were. Um, I mean, I think we were starting to get into. Um, you know, very primitive computers by today's standards. Right, right, yeah. And which is, I mean, would you agree actually that that screen technology is a is a or can be experienced as a considerable distraction from actually making a commitment oh. as is needed here? Yeah. Oh, definitely. But at the same time, you know, I've had this love hate relationship with it. Because mm-hmm. um, well, I started out in the old dial-up, you know, brrr, ear, <laughs> the old dial-up computers, mm-hmm. um, and well, it, the computer has enabled all of my work, basically. Because, you mean work, work with others? You mean yes, all of okay. my writing, uh, pretty much all of my artwork has been computer dependent. I print things out on the computer as templates and, you know, work from there. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but all of my published material is dependent on the computers. Okay. You know, I didn't, I wouldn't have even tried to write all this on a typewriter. <laughs> okay. So, but it also has big drawbacks on a societal level. It's been very damaging. Um, and this uh, sort of, pseudo collectivity is really damaging at the same time yeah there's a lot of negatives mm-hmm. at the same time there's a lot of positives i mean we get to talk to each other right i mean this sure. is fucking amazing you know this is dick tracy stuff you know <laughs> have a friend we're, we're, we're both. having a con a conversation on his watch you know and i was, I was blown away <laughs> well we're both we're both old enough to to remember exactly what that means, yeah, and, and how odd it seemed in the Dick Tracy yeah. comics to see Dick Tracy talking to someone yeah. on his watch. Yeah, and it's here. It, it, yeah. <clears throat> um. Well, I, um, I have a couple other uh, areas I wanted to explore. Uh-huh. Um, in uh, I think it's step ten in initiation into hermetics. Uh, there's discussion about uh, meeting meeting the genius or the one's uh, 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 guardian or one's uh, 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 higher. Yeah, yeah. And and you you uh, in the back of uh, the companions along the way, you you actually describe provide an essay that describes. I think you the the name was Sawanta. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about that a bit, because there, there's some I, f- I found that that essay was a very refreshing and uh, narrative of the nature of our in- individuality 
in relationship to something larger mm-hmm. and the multiple threads of connection between our individual lives and other individual lives as potentially reflected in a uh, being, uh, a higher being that is behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. The holy guardian angel is a common theme throughout Western hermetics, uh, or well, the Western traditions, period. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, well, the Judeo, uh, Hebrew, uh, uh, Christian, Islamic, the whole shebang. Um, uh, and it, it, in reference to it being step 10, it actually occurs, first contact is in step five. That's the first contact with the holy guardian angel. It's through passive communication. So we start communication with this aspect of awareness as early as possible, okay? That the first point that we can hope for any kind of an objective exchange in step five. So what the holy guardian angel is, is an aspect of our own awareness. Okay. The greater self is what I call this aspect of awareness. And we each are a part of a greater self. The greater selves are sort of groupings of essential meanings. Okay, and they're in the eternal realm. They're eternal. They are our eternal mental body. Or part of our eternal mental body. As it goes through these phases as it comes into the temporal realm, okay? So there's this one phase at which we are each connected with a greater self. And there are, who knows, how many greater selves. There are probably an infinite number of greater selves that all give birth to what I call solitary selves, the individual selves, the temporal mental bodies, that make up the temporal universe, okay? I'm seeing blank stares. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, so this is a higher level of self that exists in the eternal realm, okay? It's sort of our connection with the I. We sort of go through our greater selves as we reach the I. And this greater self uh, is connected, gives birth to a set of individuals. And the greater self that I gave me birth is the one that I call Swanta. And I have met several other individuals that are children, shall we say, of Swanta. It's very common for individuals from the same greater self to interact with each other during incarnation. You know, we're, we're related, basically. Um, it's a very special relationship, because from the greater self perspective, my whole temporal existence is 
a, a fait accompli. You know, it's you can see the whole thing from that perspective. So the greater self always has uh, wisdom to offer. Its voice is the conscience. Mm. Okay. That's the voice of the greater self. So it's greater self is always with us, you know, throughout life. And if we listen to it, we increase that connection, that communication, and it can eventually be a two-way communication. You know, not necessarily in words, but a communication of meaning okay. from a part of self that knows vastly more than, you know, the individual self does. Well, I mean, go, continue, please. I, I don't know what more to say. So, All right. Well, so, so, I mean, the reason you interpreted at least my face is having a blank stare is that as you're saying all this, it sounds very similar. Our, uh, our next podcast mm-hmm. is with someone who's written some, a lot of stuff about the Seth material and mm-hmm. elaborated the Seth material, which I dare you're likely to be f- at least somewhat familiar with, I, I guess. Somewhat. I'm of the age. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so there's a lot of resonances. Uh with what you were just saying hmm. with the material that I'm, I mean, I read, I read a bunch of the Seth books 40, 50 years ago, years, and years ago. Right. Yeah. And, and, and reread some of it later, but, uh-huh. but now I'm reading this guy's, this guy's book. Uh, and, um, and so I'm reintroduced recently to, to a lot, to, to ideas that are very similar to what you, uh-huh. what you just um Outlined. I don't understand the Suanta, but Stuart's read. Well, I don't. The Suanta, each greater self, when we uh, approach the the greater self, um, it's in a relationship that evolves. You know, the greater self will appear visually with a certain appearance, but that evolves over time as the deeper that connection gets. Okay. But there is a sense of individuality to a greater self mm-hmm. not the same as you know you are my individual it's a much more inclusive sense of individuality but there mm-hmm. is sort of a discrete nature to the greater self and i gave you know my greater self this name so okay. was what you know seemed like the right name okay for me, so so the, so the the a couple of points I wanted to ask about that's uh, related to what Rob was uh, describing. So you've met other embodied people in this life who um, you have come to understand are uh, individuals of this um, uh, greater, as you call it. Through which you're related. Right. Right. Um, is, Is that... Would that be understood as uh, reincarnational lives, or oh, would yeah. It, oh yeah, so so in other words, there can be re- as it were reincarnational lives that are in other time periods, but also in other spatial periods. I'm saying that right now, yeah, I know I've met people in this life, right, who are 
incarnate right now. Yeah, and, and, and the way you the way you describe it is uh, through your work, you describe being able to move to a place where you can partake of those lives. Right, exactly. Even re- relatively intimately and, and certainly gain information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they bear the same resemblance to a reincarnational life in a different time period. Well, I mean, when you reincarnate, you're still the same person. Every lifetime, you are the same person. You know, uh, you might look different. You right. have a slightly different personality, but you are the same person. You know, that does evolve, but not so radically, uh, you know, as we evolve in a single lifetime. You know, it's radical, you know, compared to when I was in my 20s, I'm totally different. But is that is that same person that at the same level as the greater or is the person that uh, incarnates into different uh, manifestations uh, a still subdivided from the greater? Yes, it is subdivide a subdivision of the greater. It partakes of the greater's essential meaning, that quantity, uh, flavor, combination that greater possesses. It passes to all of its individuals a certain part of its own, uh, you know, makeup of essential meaning. <clears throat> so, so then, to use an analogy, of the individuals might be seen as fingers on a hand. And the greater uh-huh, is the uh-huh, hand, uh-huh, uh-huh. but yeah. but at the level at the level of my uh, knuckle, uh, there might be multiple streams and multiple right. lives that my per- that, that that this personification is uh, partaking of uh, okay. to, enri- to enrich the uh, uh, experience right. of yeah. the greater. Yeah, well, so it it goes down to about here, and then it splits into a thousand a million pieces. <laughs> For each so it's like okay, okay. So it's kind of kind of like <laughs> thousand, thousand armed Avalokiteshvara in yeah, Buddhism, right? Yeah, but but that makes sense. That that but, but I, I'm trying to I'm and and someone listening to this may uh, it may be very abstract, but uh, the it's 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 clear in the sense that there may be different embodiments of uh, a greater that we partake of. Or that were emanations of, but that's not that's not the same as individual lives that I may uh, uh, partake of as a person. That's still a man, uh, an emanation of the greater, right? Right. So, but the but qualitatively, the feeling you would have is we're kind of cousins, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, these are these are the people in my experience that absolutely get what I write. You know, mm-hmm. I can write some really obscure things. That I think, oh, God, nobody's going to understand this shit. You know, and they they get it. You yeah. know, and like, oh, brother. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> so <clears throat> uh, I, I thought it would be worthwhile just to speak a little bit about some of the beyond the initiation process of initiation into the hermetics, uh, the Bardon corpus also consists of a topic we were talking about at the beginning, which is the practice of magical evocation. And then there's this thing, the, the key to the true Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Kabbalistic system that um, Bardon describes is uh, 
Yes, I, I don't know if I could, you can say it's unique anymore. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a certain it's certainly lucid in the sense that uh, Kabbalah mm-hmm. Kabbalah typically one reflects as a uh, philosophical system, and it may be an aid in some magical systems to imagination. But in the Bardon system, there's a well, very clear description of like activating within oneself these different uh-huh. keys. So maybe could you talk a little bit about that system and sure. Uh, I- Barton's Kabbalah is unique in the literature, um, not necessarily unique in the practice, but he's very, uh, a rabbi called Abilafia from, well, many hundreds of years ago, uh, worked a lot with the keys, the combining of the letters. So Barton's Kabbalah is strictly about the letters and combining the letters. The Kabbalah itself is much broader than that. The Kabbalah is best summarized by the Tree of Life, which is composed of 10 sephirot and 22 letters. Okay. Um, Now there's various versions of of that. Um, So, Barden's Kabbalah is interesting. And like I said, it works with the letters on a magical basis. So you are speaking the letters much like we manipulate the elements. We convert a philosophical idea into a substance that we then manipulate, okay? And that's what we're doing with the letters in Barton's Kabbalah. And that involves color, uh, a tone, a musical tone, uh, a sensation, and uh, speaking the letter itself. Now, Barden bases his Kabbalah on a German alphabet, which is slightly different from the Hebrew alphabet, but he relates it all to the Hebrew alphabet. So he's basically using the Hebrew alphabet, but just fudging things a little bit. He's got five five extra letters in there, though. Well, yeah, but what it is, is those are the vowel points. There are five vowel points, which are necessary in speaking Hebrew. Because mm-hmm. Hebrew otherwise is just a bunch of consonants that you can't, can't utter without vowels in there. So the vowel points make the Hebrew utterable, uh, make it into a language. Uh. Um, so it's it's a very lengthy process of over and over practicing these associations as you're speaking the letters until it changes you. Hmm. This is a process, the training section in KTQ, Key to the True Kabbalah, is all about self-transformation with the letters. So it's all about the letters in the body and transforming the bodies, okay? And then when it comes to speaking the letters externally, this is when you have transformed that philosophical idea into this substance that is then active on whichever plane you want it to be active on. Um, Now, a lot of people lately have gotten a hold of KTQ and, like, are suddenly Kabbalists and 
but KTQ is really an advanced work. You really do have to, as Barden states, completed step eight of initiation into hermetics or the equivalent. You have to have these faculties in order to truly speak or utter Kabbalistically. So it is, again, just a, a matter of training and sufficient training. Well, I, I understand from your uh, statement just a moment ago that, that you see people taking up that work without having done that preparatory work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like evocation, you know, people just start out of, you know, just start right off the bat. Evoking, hey, yeah. hey, this looks cool. <laughs> well, I, but that's I think that's a uh, it's a it's a point that I think is worth emphasizing. Uh, not not just on the the way that people fool themselves, but the the sort of the folk. Uh, impression of magic is uh is like for instance to to utter a magic spell you know like to to uh, a magic word or something like that which is a series of vowels and consonants in the folk tradition oh that word has some power but it has no power it's the power oh, exactly the power the is power like comes from within yeah right, the power and what you associate you know it's all about the associations with that utterance you know, that gives it power, that it has to have a mental, astral, and physical power, you know, just and, utter that. But I, my understanding, though, uh, from your writings, it, I mean, even the word association is a little bit uh, uh, misleading because it's not like a mental association, like, oh, this reminds me of air. Oh, it's it's, it's like, it, it's it's your, you, you are like holding uh, well, the, the, the air. The exercises in that process of the exercises we're investing meaning in this, you know, the symbol. Basically, we're investing it with meaning that and has so, come from us. And so the body itself, the physical, the astral, and the mental bodies then become the instrument. Right. And 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 then things can happen depending on one's training, things can, you know, can happen that uh uh, in the world at large, and at the uh, uh, or within one's uh, microcosm. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking. No, no, sir, go ahead. Yeah, and it, it, the initiation into hermetics training, and with the key to the true cabal as well. All work starts within one's own body. That's where we manipulate the vital energy and experience the vital energy first is in our own body and then same with the elements we work with them in our own body the fluids in our own body it all starts in our own body so that we know what effect we're having because we're the only gauge you know of, of our own effectiveness so by practicing it in our own body we Number one, transform our body. We make it more elastic. You know, it becomes used to these substances hmm. that we're treating it with. And so we know when it comes to using them externally on someone else, 
or something else, what effect we're having. We'll know that, oh, that would be too much, or that's not going to be enough, or that's the wrong thing. Yeah. That's interesting. I, you're, this discussion is reminding me of, so my favorite writer, science fiction writer, and writer in general, Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in her Earthsea trilogy, this, uh, this ability to use, quote, true language, unquote, is has has analogies to the processes that you're describing, although it's just a story and and in fiction. But nevertheless, uh, it's taken. It's not a um, you know in some more simplistic with more simplistic authors um, the uh, the power of language is is simplistically projected onto the use of uh, magical spells or something like that. Whereas in the Earthsea trilogy, it, oops. No, I think we're we're breaking up. We can still hear you. We can still hear you. And it says my internet connection is unstable. Uh, Uh, Yeah. Your lights flickered a couple of times too. That's (laughs) okay. Um, It's interesting. You mentioned that, uh, uh, sort of universal language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I deal with this a lot. I call it the direct perception of a central meaning. And this is really the universal language. This is the mm-hmm. language that uh, other creatures speak with, a central meaning. As everything expresses a central meaning, and every form expresses a central meaning. Everything we look at communicates its essential meaning to us directly, instantly. It happens so quickly that we don't notice it. Um, But it is the basis, the foundation of all communication is essential meaning. And we receive it primarily visually, Hmm. you know, for those of us that have sight. Um, But we also perceive essential meaning through all of our senses. But we can perceive it directly if we just slow down, calm ourselves, and look for it and listen for it without thinking. You know, I have this exercise where I put five different things in front of a person, like a rock, a little toy, um, a statue, a ball, a crystal, and I say, look at this, then look at this, then look at this, then look at this. And eventually, usually very quickly, they'll understand that I get a different feeling when I look at this than I do when I look at that. And that is the voice of essential meaning. And everything speaks essential meaning. Everything we look at speaks essential meaning if we only look for it. And it, it, the universe is having a conversation continuously with us, you know. <laughs> and we can speak essential meaning as well. It's uh, interesting to me that uh, a friend of mine that. Uh 
I work with in the uh, in a Dagra divination tradition speaks about subject subject versus subject object mind. You know, mm-hmm. subject subject object mind is our ordinary way of mm-hmm. like uh, separating the universe into an object, whereas what you're right. describing uh, self other yeah. is 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 self self, and right. and it's like really opening the heart to feel well, to touch. Yes. Is it's total uh, innocence, total abandon? You know, I'm letting go of all my barriers. I'm just opening, and that's you know when everything speaks. That's a, that's a, uh, I appreciate that the conversation came to that place because that, that's a very interesting um, framing in which to uh, place how we. I mean, to me, that's about connection. What you were, what you were just describing, and how we can we can open to connection quite um, deliberately by by cultivating uh-huh. the habit of doing that. Uh-huh. And yeah. I think I think that's an important reminder to people. We sort of have to cultivate it because we're taught to not open. Right. I mean, that's growing up. It's about, you know, keep those boundaries. Right. You're invading my space. Yeah. Exactly. But but it's I recommend I recommend to you my -hmm. little book called Love Letter to a Dying World. Oh, okay. It's a real tiny little thing, a little paperback book. Um it introduces uh well a whole lot of shit. <laughs> I'm writing it down. Okay. Go ahead, Stuart. You were um, going to do well. I think you know, Yeah, we just uh, we just have a few minutes left, and uh, uh, so I don't want to unpack a big topic. But you know, I, I um, the work one does, you know, on in this uh tradition you know one 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 as one matures as a a, a magician i've 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 known uh magical schools that often are doing work with energy like like for instance for the environment trying to actually help help the uh the uh the natural world in this time of stress and so there are these Participation in projects. Uh, my friends who in the uh, divinatory community, you know, that's a very earth-based and elemental, but earth elemental-based practice. And so, there's offerings to trees. There's there's this subject-subject. It's kind of a beautiful, uh-huh. you know, engagement and conversation. Uh-huh. So I'm just curious, uh, from your perspective, is there, you know, bigger chunks of work that one, you know, does, does, does one take on, let's say, uh, assignments as it were, or, uh, obligations or work, you know, it has one. Uh, some might, I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of shit to be done. Um, my, uh, love letter to a dying world is along the same vein you're talking about right there about, Hey, you know, we're at a point in the world where we need to get our shit together and we need to get it together right quick in order to make amends, at least. You know, we may not be able to save the planet, but we need to say, I'm sorry. We need to give it some healing 
some love in whatever way we can. Mm -hmm. That's what my love letter to a dying world is about. You know, it's about, hey, do something. Do something now. Here's something you can do to make yourself more of a human being. You know, I, I would really like if the world would let go of this word magician and just say human being because it's so destructive to set this aside as something special you know and to set magicians as something special is very destructive it does so much damage to so many egos you know oh i'm a magician you know i can do this i can do that you know and it's just about becoming a human being is all. <laughs> so I say it's kindergarten. You know, it's the kindergarten we never got as, as we were growing up. Nobody taught us how to be a human being. You know, they taught us to how to be an employee or how to be a soldier, but not how to be a human being. We've had to learn that ourselves. <laughs> Well, I think that that's a uh, that's that's a pretty good place to conclude our conversation. Okay. <laughs> it is. I, I, I don't really want to start anything more on that because uh, I think it, it's a it's a beautiful place. So well, we're uh, at a point where I have to go pee anyhow. So. <laughs> well, so, there's there's so, being a human being. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so Ron, Ron, thank you for joining us on the mystical positive. We really appreciate it's been it. my pleasure. It's been a All right. pleasure. All right, thank you so much. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Ron Clark, author of A Bardon Companion, A Practical Companion for the Student of Franz Bardon's System of Hermetic Initiation. The Franz Bardon series of books on magical arts, Initiation into Hermetics, The Practice of Magical Evocation, and The Key to the True Kabbalah are considered by many as the most lucid and actionable written material on hermetic practice. In A Bardon Companion, Ron Clark combines two versions of his commentaries for each of the ten steps in initiation into Hermetics, additional commentaries on the practice of magical evocation and the key to the true Kabbalah, as well as years of correspondence with students on the Bardon system. It is an essential guide for anyone interested in exploring the Bardon system of Hermetics. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.